0: And so we begin our uh, Dhamma Talk evening chanting the refuges and precepts together. <clears throat> <clears throat> Namo Tassa Bhagavato. Arahato, some are some Buddha, Arahato, some are some Buddha, Arahato, some Buddham sarananga chami, Dhammam sarananga chami sangaṃ saraṇaṃ gacchāmi dutiyampī buddham saraṇaṃ gacchāmi dutiyampī dhammaṃ saraṇaṃ gacchāmi dutiyampī saṅghaṃ saraṇaṃ Tatiampi tatiyam buddham saraṇaṃ Tiampi, damam saranan, gachami. <coughs> Tatiampi, Sangam saranan, gachami. Pana tipata, sika, padam, samadiami. Adina dana, sika, padam, samadiami. <coughs> Abrachmacharya, chariya ameni sika padam, samadiyami Musawada, where sika padam, samadiyami Sura mereya majapamadatana, where sika padam. Samadi Ami, We Kalabojana, We Sikapadam, Samadi Ami, Nacha, Gita, Wadita, We Sukadasana, Malaganda, We Lepana, Dharana, Mandana, We where Sikapadam sika padam samadi ami ucha sayana padam silam maga palanyana pachayo o Yeah. <laughs> With this evening's talk, we'll begin exploring mindfulness. And we'll begin the talk uh, this evening with a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. So, allowing yourself to sit comfortably, Letting your eyes gently close. As though we're in Bodhgaya, under that tree, with a young man named Siddhartha Gautama. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed and aversion and delusion at Siddhartha, the arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt. Accompanied by the words, what makes you think you have the right to be sitting here? where, and how you are. Just who do you think you are, anyway? And the Bodhisattva, the just-about-to-be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering, undistracted mind. Siddhartha was sitting under the bow tree that night with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisatta, in his amazing grace, simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated. Never again to have any power over the Buddha. It wasn't quite yet the Buddha at that point. And so we said, maybe not always quite like the Buddha sat on that night twenty five hundred years ago, but we practice with practice with sincerity and with diligence and determination at home, alone, and maybe with your sangha, your practice community, wherever you live. And right now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice the particular qualities of heart and mind that were also perfectly in place within Siddhartha, that night under the bow tree, as we practice these capacities of heart and mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable actually that this happens if we continue to practice. So this evening we'll explore the quality or factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice. And that's mindfulness. And as we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourselves. Which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart, rather than listening from the head. So in support of this, it's helpful to really deeply relax in and through the body. So just take a couple of moments now to drop into your body with a bright, easy attention. Relaxing from head to toe. And letting the whole body, heart, and mind deeply relax into simple, direct presence. And with an open mind and heart, simply hearing. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. Really the very conditions we have here on retreat. A pervasive and deep mindfulness along with a calm and concentrated mind are really the key factors for the mind and the heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind necessary for awakening. In fact, really the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's the factor of mind that gives birth to all the other factors that are necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. The chief and the mother we could say maybe that mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really uh, begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And sometimes this is translated as memory or to remember. So, if we break this word down in English, to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect to the present moment's experience of body, heart, and mind, I think that many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our very strong, habituated conditioning to not remember to not directly freshly purely connect to the present moment's experience but rather remain resting in the inertia of our habits once in a Dhamma discussion a number of years ago someone asked what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice I think it's a very good question, especially these days, uh, because it's such a commonly used word. So commonly used, it's a good thing on one level, but on another level it has lost maybe some of its depth, some of its potency has dissipated. So what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? the great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this. Absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing our body and mind. Meaning in this case, absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Being receptive to what is, without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, or should be, or could be. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti said, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called in the Zen tradition the don't know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way that it really is which may at times appear so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, but to meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy, to come really close to see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet at the same time, it's not a, a sticky, fixed sort of connection. Mindfulness is a clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and just deep enough to know it. Mindfulness is the active aspect of awareness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to the present moment's experience. And I'll repeat that because it's not so much the way we may think of mindfulness. It's a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment experience. And at its best, a pure, it's purely receptive in relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention to a whole range of experience including things that we usually do quite mechanically breathing, walking moving the body, seeing, smelling hearing, tasting, touching, thinking we pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant that may be wonderful and easy to be with and we give attention to experience that's unpleasant experience that might be difficult to be with. We open to it all, no parts left out. Really the very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not like, well, I could really be mindful if I wasn't so restless. Or I I knew I I could be really mindful if I wasn't I didn't feel so much anger or sadness or pain. If I wasn't sick, I could really be mindful. If I felt better, I know I could be mindful. If I wasn't so caught up in thinking or so attracted or attached to beauty, then I know I could be mindful. It's not that. Mindfulness is about living in the action living in the action of the body, the heart, and the mind, living in the present moment's experience. In a sense, we forget ourself. We, in a sense, lose our self in what is. And so there's just what is, without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take anything away. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking that I'm doing this or I'm doing that. The moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating a kind of a sense of separa- of a separate self. Creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way of things. And we're living in an idea. The idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living in the action. Sometimes meditation practitioners, Dharma practitioners, think of mindfulness as a kind of magic. I've heard this said. Though this is not the magician's magic, that creates an illusion and then pulls us into that illusion, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and the great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. We're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity and attachment to these not-clearly-seen appearances. The result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. The Venerable Anilayo puts it this way in his book, Satipatthana, The Direct Path to Realization. This is the Venerable Analaya's words. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for sati-patana as an ingenious middle path which neither suppresses, suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. One of the central tasks of sati is the d de- automatization of habitual reactions and perceptual evaluations. Sati thereby leads to a progressive restructuring of perceptual appraisal and culminates in an undistorted vision of reality as it is. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing in this way, bare awareness of a hindrance becomes a middle path between suppression and indulgence. Important aspects of sati are bare and equanimous receptivity combined with a broad and open state of mind. As a mental quality, says Venerable Analayo. Sati presents the deliberate cultivation and the qualitative improvement of the receptive awareness that characterizes the initial stages of the perception process. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope and even maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given time is pretty permanently in place. And, of course, from many, many perspectives, myriad perspectives, we want life to suit our passing fancies and our expectations and our deepest desires. And as it is in relationship to this, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish all of this through external experiences by getting this and that or him or her doing this and that, going here and there and we try for or uh, go for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and thoughts as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout our life. As many of you know, at least conceptually, none of this really works to bring a sustaining happiness. The Buddha talked about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said that happiness arises when we're mindful. That's kind of a radical statement. Happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and we look closely. We look closely to see and to sense and to know our experience directly. It's as though our meditation practice That mindfulness, it is through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritually perfect Right or useful moment than the one that we're in, we have then really, truly, and wholly embraced our life and infused it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of deep intimacy really the deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops, expands, and matures. It becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound intimacy, with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is very simple. Be aware. Intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment. See and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment, and this present moment, and this present moment? This is really the basic foundation of all forms of Buddhist practice. How is it in, ex- in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch? How is it in, exper- in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be, or imagine it to be, or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to our present moment's experiences what allows clarity and true understanding, or insight, to arise, to really just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. We just really pay attention. The truth is actually not very far away. It's right here, ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere, right here. And it's our greatest protection. Some years ago I was teaching a meditation class here in Taos. And at the beginning of every class, people would come in and share something that occurred during their week that had to do with what we had been talking about and looking at and practicing in class. One evening, one of the women in the class came in and she said that that morning she had been watering her garden. She'd done this many, many times, watered her garden many times. But she said that morning it felt like it was the first time she really ever watered her garden because she was so present with it. And then, as she was telling us this, her mind took a big leap, we could say. And she said, how have we survived so long without being mindful? Terrible things are decided and done when mindfulness isn't present. And everybody was kind of wide eyed and wide minded with that statement from her. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. In fact, if we're really not bringing our full attention to the present moment, if we're not mindful, we're living at a distance from experience, living at a distance from life itself, which just keeps the circle, the reactive cycle of conditioned habit patterns going round and round and round. We're kind of, we could say, living akin to our computers. You know, you push the button of your computer and out comes what's already in there. When our buttons are pushed, out pop our conditioned patterns, our conditioned reactions. Another way of looking at this is that without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that aren't focused properly. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. We experience life through the filters of ideas, preconceptions, opinions, judgments, hopes, fears, and similar past experiences. So, for instance, an experience that probably every one of us in this room has had. You meet someone new, and you don't see them as they actually are. You see them in relationship to your thoughts about them, how much you think you like them or are attracted to them or how much you think you don't like them or aren't attracted to them. Or maybe they remind you of somebody else. So you see this new person in relationship to the similar qualities you're thinking about. Or maybe you see this new person in relationship to how you are hope they are, or maybe what you want from them, or hope you can get from them, or hope you won't get from them. With all of this, you're not experiencing this person that you've just met, never seen before, met for the first time, you're not experiencing them just simply as they are. Have you ever gotten to know someone and found out that they weren't at all like your imagined ideas about them were. Without mindfulness, everything that we perceive is like this. Everything we see, taste, hear, touch, smell, think is immediately interpreted back to us in conformity with our habitual thought, habitual thoughts and habit patterns. Meditation practice grounded in mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear, sharp focus to see things as they are, as though for the first time, without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, with what's often called beginner's mind. When one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, I was visiting uh, my son and daughter-in-law and him for the first time. uh, uh, I'd visited them many times, but they had moved to Pennsylvania, and I was visiting them there. And my granddaughter, or my uh, daughter-in-law and my grandson and I were taking a walk down the hill behind their house. And my grandson noticed a pine cone on the ground. It was the first time he'd ever seen a pine cone. He'd never never seen one before. So he picked it up. He looked at it. He turned it every which way that he possibly could, all around, bottom, top, all the whole circumference of it. Looked at it very closely. And then he stuck it up in front of his nose and he smelled it all over every which way he could get his nose on it, he smelled it. Then he stuck out his tongue and he tasted it, licked it, all over. Really investigating this thing that he found, brand new thing. It was amazing. So his mother and I, being a good mother and a good grandmother, we we dutifully said, "Um, this is a pine cone. Well, he really couldn't have cared less, but he was a good boy, so he looked at us and he repeated the word, pinecone, like a good boy should. (laughs) And then he went back to his direct experience of pinecone with his very fresh, open, beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn or really relearn to bring into our life as a whole. And it's really transformative. Transformative and potentially deeply healing. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And this evening we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body, just the body as such, not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it. And of course, there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as you all know, one of our primary orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breathing is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils, or the rising and falling movement in the belly, a basic ground of mindful attention, I've been quite deeply grateful and even awed at times at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and the mind that happens as well as for what comes to be known and seen, to be understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So now for just a moment, close your eyes if they're not already closed and let the attention drop into your breath. Mindfully absorb the attention into the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly or the simple sensations of the in-breath and the out-breath at the nostrils. And giving this attention without any self or with as little self as possible. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, are you trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? It's very important to notice this without judgment to notice it without any self-recrimination. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. As a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. At times we might particularly notice each breath each inhalation and exhalation directly as sensation or maybe as movement or maybe as vibration in the area of the body where we connect with the breath noticing it maybe right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end and maybe actually noticing the ending the, sens- the cessation of an exhalation and the beginning of the next inhalation Or we might very simply notice the movement of the in-and-out breath at the nostrils. Or maybe in the belly. Just this very simple mindful awareness. Which helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breath. And an overall body-mind calm. It's a very fine support toward developing a more refined mindful attention. The body in the body. Mindfulness of the four postures. Not our ordinary everyday quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing, careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting and carrying, and even bringing mindfulness of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking up. Who's moving? Who's lying down? Is there a someone, a me, an I behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be just simply known as standing? Sitting is just simply sitting. Walking is just simply walking. Without the layer I am or the internal feeling that this is me walking, me sitting, me lying down, etc., Once, uh, many years ago now, one of my Burmese teachers, the venerable Saida Upandita, asked me in a practice interview, is there a woman or a man or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensations? Or for just a brief moment, I was caught by the question which in retrospect I decided was a kind of a test of my practice at the time from Sayadaw. But very quickly uh, during that uh, practice interview there was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Sayadaw. I said something like, no, there's no woman or man or anybody known, when I'm directly connected with and mindful of walking or whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So a good observation and question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body and the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experiences arise out of. For instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins. Where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't, I don't in some independent, mysteriously isolated way stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel our actions come solely from the place of a separate, isolated I and me, we'll eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience or in the past. As mindful awareness of the body and the body blossoms, there is a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering that begins to take hold which can open our heart to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to all beings. So, going into another facet of mindfulness of the body, how identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body? How is that for you? Some years ago now I had a student whose name was Roy, a very deeply dedicated practitioner right up until his dying moment. He was uh, dying and died of AIDS-related complications. And one uh, afternoon I was sitting with him in the hospital as he was lying in his bed. And at that point there really wasn't very much left of his body. He was lying there and, and then he stretched up his arm overhead and slowly turning it one way and then the other way and looking at it very carefully with great interest for a while and then he said in a very cool and yet odd way odd way not odd but in awe of way all he said was wow the form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions just as, for instance, does the arising of anger. Or the sensation of coolness on the skin. Or the liking or the disliking of some experience. Or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment. Choices are made but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements and the process of intention that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next uh, domain of mindfulness in the body of the body and the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. And in the classical Buddhist text there are 32 parts of the body. I won't name them all, but hair, skin, muscles, bones, all of the various internal organs and fluids In your practice here in retreat, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known, such as the intestine, the bladder, the heart, the lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc., etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice is one that isn't very often taught here in the West. Though it actually can be quite a a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification with this body as being a solid entity and it being mine, it being me. And I have no doubt that each of you have noticed many parts of your body even during these first few days of the retreat but how often have you noticed them in a mindful way so for instance how identified are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it or the hair on your body How do you attend to the experience of your intestine and the digestive process therein? Or to a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all the various contents of the body. How often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention. Just the body in the body. Without the layers of ideas, interpretations, and concerns about it. Just the body as a body. This can really be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating contemplating the body as a body, internally, externally, he or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So, Just for a moment now, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, rupa being the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So considering this for a moment in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman or I'm a man. I'm thin or fat or not too thin or not too fat. I'm tall or short, I'm of average height. I'm good looking, I'm handsome, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin, I have light skin. I have good skin, I have bad skin. My nose is large. My nose is too big or small. I have a cute nose. (laughs) I'm wrinkled and old and weak or I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years or just within a few days or just within moments in our mind, even though we engage tremendous effort, energy, and time in clinging to these various identities. There's really no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. There's no place to rest in these constantly changing relative perceptions and ideas of who we think we are. Another important and potentially profoundly insightful aspect of mindfulness that can be established in the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different from any other form, any other rupa. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially another uh, non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity, to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a, a profound teaching and a very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality. The ultimate reality of form, of rupa. One aspect of the reality of how it really is. How or what this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and the practice is about directly discerning what are called the four great essentials, or the four great elements. Earth, water, fire, air, or wind. Through directly experiencing the very specific characteristics of each of these elements in the body in relationship to sensations. And we do this when we're sitting, and when the body's moving. This evening I'm just going to mention the characteristics of each of these elements. And we'll explore, uh, explore them much more specifically in another uh, talk quite soon. So the characteristics of the earth element as sensation are hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, and lightness. The characteristics of the water element as sensation are flowing, cohesion. The fire element uh, characteristics are heat or warmth, cold or coolness. And the air or wind element characteristics are supporting and pushing. All and each of these bodily sensations are readily available <coughs> for us to experience and can be uh, mindfully experienced at any time. And as I said, we'll explore it more specifically at another time. <coughs> The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Seemingly not something that we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is that there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects, maybe birds other creatures, and certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas, are mortal. They have the nature to die and to decompose, or just to deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, it's possible to observe this directly, I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do as and after they die. Once when I was on a retreat with a few friends on uh, Cape Cod in Massachusetts, where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months of practice together. I had the great good fortune, maybe this is just a good fortune in the world of Dhamma practice, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day for the month, for a whole month, I walked down to that body and I sat with it for a while, observing and letting the process of decomposition and decay, letting it in, observing it, which in this instance um, was actually happening quite quickly, because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found the seal's decaying flesh to be absolutely delicious food. This daily practice during that month-long retreat was a heart-mind-changing experience for me, on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until relatively recently was the abbot of the Amaravati Monastery in England, and who's the senior Western monk uh, in the Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Cha, tells about a time that he was living in the monastery in Thailand, and asked that he be able to spend uh, a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk, the authorities let him go in, although he said uh, quite reluctantly. He said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged. I think he actually used the word fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which almost, he said, drove him to run right out the door. But he just stayed mindfully present, and little by little it became tolerable. Just a smell. Just a scent. He spoke He spoke about his long-standing and deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him in the morgue. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and he saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, stuck on the ceiling, which he found quite puzzling at first. And then he quickly realized that the bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped would not happen while he was in there. It didn't. He was glad of that. He said that when he went back out onto the street, he said he saw people in a radically new way, with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or being strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably first and foremost, our own form. And also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong That most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for and attachment to, for instance, forms that please us. Or forms that are beautiful to us. Or forms that are amusing or interesting to us. Or just the simply taken for granted familiar forms. I think what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change, won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting, if we begin to see it closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, our body, and our mind. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. What we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama and our thought, feelings, and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them, to be present with sensation. And our body is, in our body is not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance, which is a very important aspect of loving kindness, metta. An act of unconditional acceptance with grace and at least some degree of equanimity. The acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself not wanting things to be different, and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience in the body. In such moments, we feel and intuitively know as our activity, as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat and, of course, also outside of the formal retreat setting. So we might wash our dishes as an act of generosity and love. In a sense, then, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist and the hand and the fingers are doing. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold or from very hot weather. We catch ourselves and consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware can often be an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment, to feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. Someone once said, and it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, the body is tremendously homesick for us, and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available full of life and know-how. And all of a sudden we find that we need no training to really be fully alive. That we only lack the determination to feel our aliveness. The body is an excellent meditation subject. It always tells the truth. So, if you, for instance, if you break a leg, the body is not going to give off a pleasant feeling. It doesn't have the capability to get lost in the past or to project into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and informal aspects of our our meditation practice. Also, mindfulness or mindful presence in the body can often be a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling too overpowering to be with. As I think we all experience, at least to some degree, we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we each find the way. and Because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, Many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge in relationship to this conditioning for each one of us. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way are healing, beautiful. And the simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. There's one thing that when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention. To peace. To mindfulness. And clear comprehension. To vision and knowledge. To a happy life here and now. And to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It's mindfulness centered on the body. So in closing this evening's talk, I'd like to offer you uh, I think, what I think is a wonderful and an inspiring instruction from the Buddha that we can offer to ourselves anytime. This is from the Majjhima Nikaya. <clears throat> it's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past, nor on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind, and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know this and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night. It is her, him, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment.